You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, so uh, Mark Madsen, are you there? I am here. Sweet. Uh, and where is here? Where are we talking to you from? You are talking to me from Mount Tabor in Portland, Oregon. Sweet. The only volcano inside the city limits of a city in the U.S. <laughs> fun facts already. We're already into to, uh, fun facts. So we have, <laughs> we uh, are. <laughs> exactly. So we have uh, Mark Madsen, who's the... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You're the chief architect of Teradata. Although, as I recall from when we met in London at, at the O'Reilly Strata conference, your card, your business card is null. There is no title. Can you tell us why there's no title on it? I can tell you two things. One, uh, chief architect for Teradata services, not for all of Teradata. Because Teradata it. makes products. and yeah. So, so the services side. And yeah, the cards are null because the conversations the chief architect has might be with very detailed developers or they might be with IT people and management or they might be with executives. And you don't want to set people's expectation based on a title when you talk to them. So you leave it blank and then you just talk about what you do instead based on what they are uh, interested in. That sounds like some of your uh, consulting background at play. As I, as I recall, you were, you were a consultant independent for quite some time in this whole BI space and analytics space for a long time. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your background? As, as If I recall correctly, you started in game design for Apple computers, like 8-bit, and then you did some AI projects about 20, 30, 40 years too early. You did some uh, mobile robotics work a little bit too early, or at least too early in the sense of prior to kind of when these technologies are, are more like daily topics and not academic topics. Can you, can you give, give us some background on, on who you are now and where you, where you came from? Yeah, actually, that's a really good point, what you just said. A lot of things went from academic projects when I was playing around with stuff to commercial now. And the thing about academia is that they are not commercially viable much of the time. I was doing all the stuff when it wasn't viable to do it, I guess. But yeah, the AI work was expert systems, which was the final stage of the death of AI back in the late 80s. That was funded by me in my spare time writing 8-bit video games that went out on diskettes for Apple II computers. That's how I paid in part for college. Not a whole lot of relationship then, although I was always interested in, in, well, if I have an expert system that understands this, could I apply it within the context of a game and make smarter opponents? Which has come full circle now, right? Except they're not expert systems anymore. Well, they kind of are, but... That's how those things came together. And the AI stuff led to the robotics stuff because, you know, if you're trying to do autonomous robots, there's this intersection of things there. That was in the early 90s and that, that was a bit too early as well. So, yeah, that's how I got that start. But all the, the psychology, behavioral economics and AI stuff led me commercially to data because when I left academia, I was like, well, you can either make a fraction of a normal income or you can apply your skills to business. And business is much easier in the intellectual rigor sense, but it's much harder in the complexity sense. So you trade one set of puzzles for another and it works out. That's, that's an interesting perspective on it. I want to kind of get into your business insight on kind of this this whole world of data and analytics. And now we're talking about predictive analytics, machine learning. There's, there's all this stuff kind of going on in this space. And of course, the theme of our discussions on this podcast is obviously kind of the tie into user experience as helping both obviously drive customer value and experience, but also ensuring tools and products and enterprise products that we build actually get used. And ultimately, they actually provide decision support and that they actually either make money or reduce cost or whatever those end goals are, which sometimes are not clearly defined. I'm, I'm curious about how, why do you care about user experience? Because my the vibe I got when we met in uh, London, I think it was at the Strata conference, I kind of have this thing when I meet people that are not titled designers that there are natural like 
design thinkers out there. And I usually, you know, they might, they might have a technical title or something. And usually I just, my radar for that is strong. I'm like, okay, this guy has that bone in him because you're talking to a room full of the tech people about experience. And one of the quotes I saw in one of your slides was the right tool is the one people will use and not the one that you want them to use. So tell me a little bit about your interest in kind of that last mile. Like you, you, you really know the full, if it's, if the whole data pipe, like from in data ingestion all the way through to some experience at the end, if that's the marathon, you seem to be aware of the value and the importance of the last mile. So where did that come from? Like, why do you care about experience and what has it done being aware of that in your career? That's a good question because it's sort of, I mean, this is at the crux of a lot of product design. And I was just going through a product design problem today with a company that makes the service request system that we use to fulfill our, you know, IT service requests, which has a problem on one of its user submission forms, right? Things that are so basic and are infuriatingly frustrating because they prevent you from doing what you need to do. And so I have a lot of empathy for people, but I think really, you know, professionally for years, I was a programmer, right? You're just sitting in there right in the guts of systems. When I started doing data projects, you know, it, it was early on because first we were applying behavioral economics and things to decision making. It was all decision theory stuff that I was working on and, and trying to do in corporate contexts or AI assist to, you know, we used to call it decision support. We didn't call it business intelligence or analytics or anything like that. I still like that old term. In order to do that, you are trying to put a computer with a person who is a not technical person and make apparent the information that they need or, you know, focus them on the important information, either by letting them find it or guiding them to it. And those things are very high touch. And if you get them wrong, then the systems do not get used or the results are not what you hoped for. That's what kind of led me down there. And the other aspect is totally unrelated, which was that if you write a video game, a video game has to draw you in. You have to be engaged in whatever that world is that the video game creates and the aesthetic of that world and the rules that one operates in in that world. And that requires that you kind of approach the problem user first or player first. Do you think that the has the fact that now now we have an maybe we have an oversupply of data and an undersupply of good decision support has that created more of the aware I, I think you know that the average you know executive or you know a VP or someone that I talk to as a client these days they know what UX is now it's no longer even explaining that and they understand they they don't maybe understand it fully but they understand its value. Do you think that came out of the fact that there's a glut of data now and now we have this problem of making it accessible? Is that where... Did, did the glut create the awareness of, oh, this is a thing. We actually do need to care about this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's multiple things going on. I think that's a big one in what you just said. And I think there's a deeper reality to it. I think one of the things is that my career spanned a period when nobody had a computer on their desk at work to the period where everybody does. One of the things about getting it right early on was business managers whose sole experience was VisiCalc running on an IBM PC or an Apple II, you know, the very first spreadsheet. And that broke the IT monopoly, which was green phosphor screens. That was the state of the art and cryptic incantations and IT and control of everything. And that put things into consumer hands. And that created first an ability to do stuff like spreadsheets. But then when they started figuring out that if you took some of your business data and jammed it into spreadsheets, we started to try to link the two things together, the mainframe and the spreadsheet. And that's what got everything off and running was more things more useful. But along that path, there was a lot of design work that's uncredited in that history that relates to the oversupply of data and the undersupply of usable systems for it, which is what you just said. And I think that what you put your finger on is, is key. You go through various periods of history and data gets made available, but we don't know how to make it usable or findable or whatever. And every system has a pivot point where at first there's 
not enough or just enough stuff, but eventually there's too much stuff. When you, you hit one of the, the keynote topics I did for a strata conference early on, like back in 2012 or so, just on a history of information explosions. And that history of data now is kind of the same. We've got lots of data and it's distributed across silos and systems and repositories and websites. And you're trying to find all the things that are applicable to your situation and use them. And it used to be that most of that data got jammed into a warehouse and it got that because there were a bunch of different mainframe and mini computer applications that had pieces of it. And you put it into a warehouse to get a holistic view so that you could find and do things. And that whole design paradigm took a decade or more to develop and then 25 years to mature to today's state, which is not sort of, you know, sort of supporting today's needs. But this went all the way back to clay tablets. I had a research question once, which was just how does one manage large collections of information when they exceed the capacity of the technology? You know, too many files begets databases, that sort of thing. And in clay tablet land, the question I had was, gosh, if you're recording taxes on clay tablets, how do you manage them? What does it look like to have your tax records on big hunks of unbaked clay? And that led to a lot of digging around in Mesopotamian architecture and the information architecture of libraries like Ashurbanipal, which is being or has been, I think, partly reconstructed at the British Museum now. And the artifacts that they came up with to tag, essentially build metadata, you know, to organize and structure for findability, because if you want to look at last year and compare it to this year to see whether the harvests are better or worse, so you know what levy to place on the goods, all of that stuff requires information retrieval. And it turns out that the techniques that were used 7,000 years ago and the techniques that were used today from an information theoretic perspective are exactly the same. But we keep forgetting that. And we build things and then the technology becomes the view of the problem. And so instead of thinking from principles, you think from technologies and you end up where we are now. You have this oversupply of information, but everybody's viewed it through a technical lens. So the BI stuff, for example, is crap tooling for today's information landscape, which is a glut, but it was perfect for yesterday's landscape as the solution to the previous glut. One thing I wanted to stop you on that I, I really liked was when you talked about the tax levy, right? So what was the crop yield the previous year? Like This is a great example of focusing on the end user problem. So and, and this is something I see with clients, right? So if I'm talking to, to usually someone on the engineering side or they're thinking implementation, they're thinking, how do we aggregate all of the previous crop data that we have? And the actual user question is, how much tax can I charge this year? <laughs> you know, Probably they want to charge as much as they can without going too high. That's actually what the problem is. But you might need previous crop history data to make that decision. But if you don't, know that and you look at it as a, we need to visualize the crop history data, then your chances of striking out are higher. Do you agree that that's, <laughs> that's a gap that we see a lot in this space is you know, the people building the services don't always know what those kind of tasks are. And granted, some things are exploratory, but I find that a lot of times there are still, there's an 80-20 rule, especially with, with tools that are designed for repetitive use. You need to support those repetitive tasks that people are going to do. If you know that the goal is to charge tax, I need to do this every March, I'm going to go and calculate the next year's tax or whatever it is, the system should be designed to do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you've got a knack for finding some of the fundamental problems. And, and I think you put your finger on a couple of them in that statement. And I think I can only remember one now. But the point of Focusing on that decision, that's key because that's what we build data or analysis or analytic systems for. Whether it's base information retrieval, you know, what was the level of inventory in some warehouse, you know, answering the question, do I have enough or do I need more? Or something much more complex like levying taxes in a kingdom where you really need to know what's enough. Is it to maintain the roads? Is it that you have to deal with the neighboring kingdom and so you've got to pay a bunch of soldiers to go invade them, in which case you need more money? There's always the extended context to those things. 
but, but that is the starting point. The interesting thing to me is the knack for software developers and the educational program we have for software development is all based on function, what it is you need to do. And the problem is that building systems, building applications, we're typically building things that collect data, that do stuff on forms, you know, fill in this user registration form to download this white paper, that sort of thing. Or something complicated like, you know, an inventory management system. They're very functional. You get functional specifications to do functional tasks with very narrow task-based context. And that task is embedded in a larger process, which is the end-to-end of, say, inventory management. But inventory management in a business is one process that is part of a larger logistics problem. It's also part of the, say, retail merchandising problem because that feeds into the stuff that's on the shelves and which stuff should be on the shelves and which stuff shouldn't we sell anymore. And all of these things get entangled in this bigger enterprise or organizational workflow. And that is not a functional problem. That is a data and decision-oriented problem. And so the decision-making that goes with it is, is the interesting bit. That means that your functional solution has to be focused on decision-making or data in context. And at a narrow level, there's one you know, set of things around embedding. And at the wide-ranging level, it's completely different. And so your approach to solving that is not what you learn. It's not what you're taught. All of the methodologies that tend to support this tend to be very different than the agile methods that everybody applies today. It's a very interesting, difficult problem to address. And I think when you described it the way that you did, it kind of it throws it in there because data problems tend to be broader than a single system and open-ended. Open-ended problems and broad problems tend not to lend themselves to traditional engineering design solutions. And that's where you really hit back again on UX as the is a starting point. If you focus on the person and how and what they do in a much larger context than functional requirement, it drives you to think about the problem differently and more holistically. That open-endedness is something that a lot of us as developers had to be trained out of in order to work on data systems. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded, wasn't it? <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I, I think you you hit on you hit on a lot of good points there, and I agree. There, there's some of this stuff is squishy, right? Like when you get into the difference between getting a team aligned around a scenario versus the functional requirements, and and I see this happen in agile too, where where sometimes you know when when teams are doing Scrum, they're really taking old fashioned requirements and they're just backing them into as a whatever business analyst, I need to do X so that I can do Y. And while I understand the spirit, the spirit is there. They're, they're following the template of Scrum and writing stories. Sometimes that they've never gone through the process of looking at the bigger, like, where does this guy do his work? How often does he do this? Like, what's his life like? And why does, does he hate doing this? Does he love doing this? Like, there's no context of, there's no experience. They don't know what that experience is like that either he wants to have or he or she wants or does not want to have the task repetition that might be involved. There's so much of that context is, is lost. So I think, again, that falling in love with the problem and, and getting your head really around the problem is critical. Otherwise, it's just you really fall into getting into big architectural decisions and all this stuff about how you're going to suck all this data in and then spit it out at the other end and it could be a total fail, like <laughs> you know. If you look at the industry survey, that a lot of the recent market attempt has been a total fail. Gartner, Forrester, McKinsey, these analyst firms at various levels, either IT or business, are saying that in the analytics and you know, sort of big data realm, the project failure rate is somewhere in the order depending on who you look at, of 10 to 20%, I'm sorry, success rate is 10 to 20%. Now, the standard, the baseline that has run through the software industry since the 70s is 50. It's about a 50% failure rate, plus or minus five, and has been since the first paper I read on the subject of 
giant project failures back in, which was written in like 1970. Part of it, you touched on uh, agile and, and things like that. Agile is a great methodology when you already know your architecture, when you know your fundamental architecture. Like if your problem is web application or, you know, let's say you're Etsy or somebody like that. There's a pretty well understood framework within which you operate and your agile supports the exploratory work to build feature. And what I liked about it was that it, it got us away from a development model of know your requirements, build to those things, heavy upfront engineering, because it's websites and mobile applications are high touch and user dependent. And so all this A-B testing and things, it's supported by that very method. And, and along with it, of course, you know, trying to take some of the operational components in the say DevOps world, melding all of that together. And that is great when you have that framework. The problem is when you have to deal with deeper information systems that, and, and problems that people are trying to solve. Data problems are just viewed as, we'll pile all the data together and then we'll build a feature for it. And that is exactly the wrong approach. You don't build libraries by stacking books and hoping to find order in them. You figure out orders and then impose those orders in order to solve the problem because the problem is one of something like, say, findability, which requires certain things. But there's a lot more than that, obviously. The, you touched on that, the failure rates for the, these analytics and data projects. Um, I actually wrote an article trying to, to gather up all of these surveys, uh, as many as I could find. I think I only found about six. The sad part being the November 2017 Gartner one was 85%. I think they actually put out a funny tweet. It was like, 60% of all big data projects fail and then cross out. Oh, we meant 85%. Like, there's a funny tweet there, but it's like, and it's, it's been bad for a, a long time. And something is wrong here with these big enterprise systems. And so th this actually gets, gets to my next question for you. You might be a really good person to answer this or at least have a perspective on it. How do you... So it even touches on the, the whole agile thing. So a lot of times when I'm, when I'm working on a new product or a new application, if they want to do agile, I don't think agile is always the right choice for what we would call a design sprint or a sprint zero. I still feel like a more traditional design process needs to happen. You need to build a runway of some design work before the Agile is going to deliver the returns for the business that it is supposed to do. I don't think necessarily you just start coding and building day one without any... Especially for a data product, right? You need to have some idea of where you're going. And, and you want technical people involved in the design process with the product manager or whoever that's kind of playing that data product manager role and the designer. So how do you think the right way to build... If you're building a, a custom enterprise data product or application and you're starting... You're, you have a nice clean slate. There's a ton of data out there but you want it you don't want to just build another tool to go visualize this all all this data that's in the warehouse or wherever it's it's located tech from a technical standpoint how do you build a small increment of value when it might require a tremendous amount of plumbing just to kind of get to step 1 like oh my gosh we actually spit something out in a browser like the amount of work it required just to start getting data on the screen was huge because I know that's a that's an engineering problem that happens on these large enterprise projects. It might take a while just before you get something on a screen. So how do we do a small amount of value without focusing, getting too lost in big architectural discussions? Do, do you have any suggestions for how to how to do that with design and, and the business in mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of sort of questions in there. I think you hit on some interesting things just in your choice of words. Like when you said, you know, accessing a bunch of data and visualizing it, it's a presumption that all I need to do is see the data and then my problem is solved, right? When, when the data under glass is the departure point for the end user to actually do something. And so the focus, if you're designing any kind of data system, is what is the action that is intended at the end of it? And that action could be you know, I'm using Tableau and I'm trying to understand a problem so that I can figure out what to do, right? So there the action is to inform or understand versus, you know, something a bit more dashboardy where you're working out what do you need to know 
to measure the health of this business process and its operational status? And what do you need to know to diagnose problems within that so that you can make you know, decisions? Do this, do that, change this, change that. And, or, you know, a data product in the sense of like something I used to work on uh, for a bit was recommendation. And recommendations are very different depending on the type of thing you're doing in the context. And so you can't just say, I'm going to apply the same system and techniques that I use for music recommendations as I did for retail recommendations. And that goes to the context. And the way that you approach that actually looks this is, you know, sort of surprising, but it looks sort of waterfally. It doesn't look very agile because of what you said. I don't know which data I need. So your core root of your problem is what information do you need in what frame? I, I use frame to mean sort of the mental frame or the frame of reference for what kind of problem. And what I see people doing repeatedly is actually succeeding first before failing. They do one siloed problem and they build a thing that gets data from five different places. And one of them was data we never used before. You know, 15 years ago, it might've been clicks. Now it's, you know, some, something else. And blend that together to either produce a service or deliver information to somebody or to actually you know, embed as an analytic that then feeds back into a system. That is successful because the, the bounding on it was narrow. The goal was fairly well understood. The reason that these things fail is that people think they need to build an intergalactic data system to solve that problem. Step one, install a Hadoop cluster. Step two, feed massive amounts of data into it. You know, step three, build that data product or data pipeline or whatever it is. And people look at it like, wow, this worked. This is fantastic. Now, when you want to start another project, they say, well, we did this for department A. Let's try this for this other problem over here. You realize that you built a siloed, hyper-optimized, functionally oriented system that solves exactly one problem. The problem in, in our market is that Handcrafting data pipelines to support individual things is exactly the pattern that we broke in the late 1980s with a data warehouse because every single process on a mainframe basically took files, built pipelines, and produced output files that were the information that was needed. It's a human-driven, human engineering problem which builds no smarts into it because you didn't get enough context to solve more than one or two problems at a time. And that leads you to, oh, this was successful. You do it a second time, you do it a third time. And then the fourth time, you start to look for these commonalities and you realize that, no, you know, 50% of the data is overlapping between these things, but the way we process them is different. And you build tangles. You end up with the, you know, the ball of mud architecture to refer back to that famous paper. And I think that, you know, if, if I'm thinking academically, of course, if you want two great re references, one is big ball of mud architecture. And the other is the, uh, I think it was AI is, or, or machine learning is the high interest credit card of technical debt, the paper that was written. They, they kind of outline this in much more technical terms. You have to do that thing you don't want to do, which is get a broad enough view to establish the level of infrastructure support that you need, essentially to define the architecture. And there's a part which is agile, which is the upfront exploratory pieces and the contextual construction of application and data product. And there's a part which is foundational infrastructure, which is the data components that live underneath this. And the fatal mistake that is made is thinking of it as a technology problem. We can't use databases because X, their cost of storage is too expensive. I hear that all the time and it's the stupidest thing I've heard. Cost of storage doesn't matter. Your cheapest cost of storage is dev null. You know, just, hey, write once, forget about it. If you want to retrieve it, that's what really matters. The reason 
some classes of system, content management, repositories, data warehouses are so expensive is the labor that goes into making retrieval fast and efficient. And it comes at the expense of making new information available, slow and inefficient. This is the actual problem that the Dewey Decimal System solved for books 100 years ago. That is what we need now. And if you don't think about that problem and the, the fact that you are not building a custom functional solution, you are making information available so that it can be remixed quickly to build the next one and the next one. You need agile and lean and exploratory above the line and carefully curated and fast enough to support the accretion of new information and cataloging of it below the line. And if you don't divide the problems, you are screwed. And that's why I think there was five years of successes and excitement around a lot of analytics, followed by the last couple of years of, gosh, this is expensive and things aren't working out the way we expected. I'm going to sound like my, my engineering leads, my clients and stuff. We can't afford to rebuild it again in the second iteration. And, you know, they, they, the general sense is that there's a tremendous amount of lift in the first version to get to anything. And then after that, you can make it better. And so we have this kind of ping pong back and forth about like, well, yes, you can develop uh, something, but if it doesn't generate any usage and the usage doesn't generate any decisions port and that doesn't generate any value, then you just wrote code and you built a software application that may not have a problem that it solves. So, but I see the, I can see the, the alternate point, which is, okay, we solved one or two problems here. Maybe we did get an idea. Let's take something. I'm trying to think of an example to put this in concrete. So let's take a fictitious example. Like, let's just presume you, in, in 10 years, you walk outside, there's hundreds of drones circling your house, delivering packages and doing all this stuff. And maybe you're like a third-party drone service provider. We, we swap out propeller blades at the right time or something. I don't know. And they want to develop a service, right? So we all know there's probably tons of like IoT telemetry available about every working part on the drone and the towers and the communications and all this kind of stuff. And you could say, well, our, our first problem is we want to predict when you know, the propellers need to be you know, changed out. And I don't know what it may be. There's a couple handful of tasks there. The engineering person is going to argue that there's a ton of data to gather just to get to that point where we can start doing that one prediction. But the fear is going to be, well, this needs to turn into a product we can charge money for to these, you know, the drone operators or whatever. And so we need to have more than just that one thing, or we don't have a commercially viable product. So that means we need to think bigger about the whole architecture at the beginning. And then the next thing you know is we're spending all this time plumbing for all of the possible drone and the tower data and, you know, <laughs> the whole system before we've even solved that first problem, which is just propeller replacement or whatever it may be. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So like, what is that? You know, I, you can make the argument and, uh, you know, about the, the need to go understand these scenarios and what the, what the usage scenarios are and the, the actual problems and what the, the decision flow might look like for these users to inform the initial engineering sprints. But there's still that lift, right? Do you think it's like, yes, it's start with, individual problems, solve those and rework the architecture over time, even if, you know, by the fourth strike, it's a big lift. Is that the way to go? And that is exactly the wrong way to go, right? Because if you try to do that, I think that's, that's basically the solve one problem at a time, focusing on the functionality of the problem rather than what is the aggregate set of things that you need to do in the bigger picture? And that is, you know, this is complex system stuff, right? You need different sets of thinking tools around it. Just applying systems dynamics, you know, systems modeling kind of things to think about that forces you into the broader context. And, you know, you, you start and you're like, okay, I need this information, I'll slap it out here. Then I need this information, I'll slap it out here. If you don't have a framework for the information architecture, you end up with a big pile of data, which is a big part of what happened to a lot of people. One of the big vendors in this space advocates building one system at a time, but using, you know, using these big clusters and just keep piling projects into it. And somehow, magically, all of the information you piled into it 
is completely reusable. And that's a programmer-centric view of the world because as a programmer, I see X, Y, Z, I figure out what I need, I build my thing. When you try to put that into the hands of a user or you try to expand the scope of that across an organization, you end up with a giant collection of single-purpose things. It's sort of like trying to build a 100-story office building and refactoring every few floors. Eventually, the technical debt that accrues, unless you figure out what you're needing to do, that will kill you. And so you have to understand, well, this is a 100-story building. We've got to use steel girder construction and concrete. So we have to put that in place first. I think, though, construction analogies are bad analogies. I think it's better to think about infrastructure systems, municipal water. Where does the water come from? Where does it go to? How is it being used? Because I look at data systems and I see the two parts and I try to partition them. One part is the data collection and provisioning infrastructure, which is common to all at various levels of capacity. 100-story building needs big pipes. Single-family home needs little pipes. And then the second part of it is the application. And that application is where things like the agile methods, the exploratory stuff to build data products comes from. And the infrastructure piece is something you've got to get right. And what happens instead is that people go out to the lake and build a pipe that runs all the way to their house or their building, as opposed to investing in the water system and then breaking apart the problem of water consumption. Right? Changing BI tools is sort of like changing the faucets or the fixtures in your in your kitchen, at the end of a very long chain of dependencies. And that is just like the data dependencies. And if your problem is kitchen sink faucet, it's one thing. Fire hydrant is a different thing. And bottled water is yet another thing. We tend to focus on that system like bottled water and then work everything in the enterprise backwards to the data. And that is what you don't want to do. What you, that's where I said the waterfall piece kind of comes in, or, or, or we'll call it sprint zero. You have to survey the organization and look at both what you've got, what you don't have, what you need, what the problems are around that. So you have to focus on the business uses and business cases and what's feasible and what's possible. And that gives you a pretty good grasp of the overall. And where I see... A lot of data product kind of stuff go wrong, whether it's in the startup world or in the enterprise. It's not doing that. That first discovery phase that lays out that context and landscape so that you see where you're headed and what information you need. Because there's going to be 50% overlap on a core set of information. And then there's going to be things that only one piece needs. You know, going in a warehouse and picking things and putting them into boxes for order processing. Those pick events, they're probably only useful to somebody who's worried about efficiency of picking operations inside warehouses. So that's a not usable piece of data, but it's tied in with all the product data and the order data and the other things. And that information is probably common across three quarters of the organization. Understanding you know, the, these aspects of information overlap and how one builds a framework around making it possible to supply both sets of needs simultaneously. That's the kind of thinking where you have to sit back. It's like that old Alan Kay quote, you know, you don't agile your way into a compiler. You have to know your methods and know when you need to gather requirements and when you can skip the requirements because you're exploring. There's two things here. I guess I... I would push back on one thing and I would totally agree on the other. I think that discovery phase is so often lost and and it's not some of the people that need to be involved with that to develop empathy, to understand who's going to be using this stuff like day in the life. What's it like to be this person that ultimately is going to end up using the thing that you're going to work on are not always present in that. And so they're they're very decoupled. They don't have that empathy. So I love that. We would call that UX research typically, but it's going to discover what the needs are before you've done anything. But if you can get, especially the engineering people or the data people, whoever those are, the SMEs about the data and the analytics, get them involved with some of that process so they can kind of understand that world a little bit before any code has been written. I think that's a good insurance for the project. And it it really sets you... 
you really have two choices, right? You can design... So my clients, we can design on assumption or we can design on fact. Now, you may not have all the facts, but it's a choice. So one is higher risk. Designing on assumption or just using some designer's opinion about what it should be based on them talking to you, you might get lucky. And, and that's probably better than just taking a wild-ass guess on your own. But it's not as good as going out and spending some time. Oh, we don't have time to do research. It's like, how can you afford not to do it? Because you're about to spend millions of bucks on this thing. It's <laughs> so I totally agree with that. But one thing that scares that 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 doesn't scare me, but that I get concerned about is that you do some of that stuff, you then get into the weeds, and the next thing you know, that tell me how much tax to charge for the crops coming, you know, in the coming year. That kind of got lost, and it's still really hard to do that by the time the product comes out. And and I, I, these aren't really black. There's not like a black and white answer to this. So it's not like Mark Madsen tell us the man. <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of we're, we're having a discussion here, but I think that's the fear is that we can sometimes get lose sight of of what what I would call like the benchmark success criteria, right? Like maybe you have these eight to ten problems, as you call them, like the pipelines that the you know the older computer systems would shoot out a file that had just what you need in it. I would say we need to shoot out an experience in the tool that's good for each one of those. It doesn't mean like there's a wizard for every single one of these necessarily, but you do need to have some kind of criteria by which you are going to qualitatively measure the success, the user experience, the, the usability of the system. Or else, again, you're, you risk just writing code and having this big platform, but at the end of the day, the last mile, it's like the faucets don't work well, right? Or, well, yes, water comes out, but it drips and you need to fill your gallon container and it takes an hour to make a pot of coffee or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, any comments on, on my rag as I was a rant? I like the, the might get lucky, right? You know, uh, designing in the absence of any requirements works if you can be the proxy for the person who is on the receiving end of it. But if you can't, that's where it gets totally random. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's where all of those discovery sessions and, and understanding the context. I mean, I love day in the life kind of exercises. They're my favorite. I just did one yesterday because you take somebody like, like in our world, somebody who is going to be on the receiving end of, I don't know, some data product or data system. Well, let's take recommendation. What's the context of which they're doing things, right? And, and there's much more of a passive recipient side to that. But if you said, I want to build an environment for a data scientist to do their work, then it's a very complex environment. And there's all these other people that are involved because the task crosses many domains. And so day in the life exercises, I like because they show you I wanted to do this, and in order to do this, I had to do that, but in order to do that, and you know, that was the old uh, developer meme of a few years ago about yak shaving. You're sitting there staring at the yak, wondering why you're shaving a yak, and thinking back on the long chain of terrible consequences of things that had to be done in order to do the thing you really wanted to do. And that's actually where a lot of users are in organizations. You know, I find that a lot of times people like to blame the developers. But nobody ever educated the developer or the data guy in how to approach these kinds of problems. Universities have failed at this. Everybody focuses on computer science stuff, or now with data science, they focus on math. Nobody focuses on the whole problem. And so when you go out and you do these things, if you do them appropriately, and that's, that's the trick, talking to somebody about the kind of problem they're solving. Well, why are you worried about raising taxes you know, this year? Why don't you just do what you did last year? Well, because we have a war coming. Okay, well, if you have a war coming and you need to make spears, then you've got a bunch of things that you need to think about. And so you asking these sort of what next, what before, what after, all of those things flesh out an understanding. And I think that puts the understanding into the developer to make better design decisions. And so that's why I feel that this UX stuff and starting exercises from the complete end user and removing a lot of technical aspects out of the conversation helps so much. And the last mile being the key to the success or failure of a lot of information-driven systems. That right there, that's what you started with. The right tool is the one that people want to use, not the one that you want them to use, which is how IT thinks of their role. You'll use what we built and bought for you. 
That's right. And eat your vegetables. <laughs> They're good for you. <laughs> totally. No, it's a, you're, you're spot on. And, and I, I'll tell you, there's nothing like a developer or a stakeholder who has seen the light and they've either watched someone suffer through the crappy thing that they made or someone else's crappy tool, or they've simply spent some time and a light went on. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if maybe you, did you have any particular thing that was illuminated from the session you, the discovery you did yesterday? Like that's, that's one of the most exciting things for me, I think about being a designer is when you find this nugget of stuff that like no one has talked about and you're like, wow, I had no idea that you have a team of there's like four people that you need to talk to to do this. And we think we're building a self-service tool for this. And there's like an approval chain and like you have to send this data to this other thing and it comes back and you got to share it with this other person. Like, wow, just head, head exploded, but like in a good way, like, oh my gosh, and we could totally solve all of this, but we never knew that this was even a problem. Did you have any moment like that yesterday in your session? I think there were a couple probably. It happens almost every time because there's always some bit of context and maybe one person on your team knows it and the other five don't. And it's just assumed, right? Everybody just sort of assumes or they're unaware. And so fostering that, sometimes it calls into question assumptions. You know, the discovery that, wait a minute, we're building all of this stuff into our product to do X, but do we really actually need to do X? Because... Most of the time in this context, it's going to be done over here, not over there. And that completely changes what the product ought to do or what the data should be or you know, whatever it is you're building. And that's, that's the sort of thing that, that comes up. That changes your, your engineering efforts. Okay, so maybe instead of doing this, like everybody talks about self-service data integration in order to do things like build data products and you have a data engineering team and they work on this stuff, but you want self-service so that analyst types and, and data scientists could do a lot of that themselves. And then you build a system which is only amenable to developers rather than those guys, which happens all the time. Because there's all these assumptions about resources and where you can do things, how you can do things, and what skill levels people have, and, and where they view the value of their time. I think one of the big things for me years ago was uh, I did an internal user survey. So I was running uh, two teams, a business intelligence team and an analytics team. You know, the analytics guys were doing consumer research, so digging into people's behavior and what they, what they do. And the other was just the core business intelligence in the organization. I was really struggling with some of the contextual aspects of this. And the context, I talked to all these people, so I kind of knew, but I didn't know how much time they spent spent every day in various tasks. So we did some task studies. Nothing really formal. In fact, driven by interns. Arm interns with a piece of paper and a pencil or a spreadsheet. Send them out to talk to people. Look at what they do, how often and how, you know, how frequently, how, how long they do these things. And you find that the average business intelligence tool or Tableau dashboard or whatever it is that you're using, 15 minutes. And so our organization the bulk of it, the median was a 15 minutes. If you only use a tool for 15 minutes a day, that's not enough time to really become proficient or learn how to do most things. And so you better design the experience around that much more tightly than the small number of people who spend a lot more time in it. But developers tend to, and, and I include in this, you know, professional analysts tend to presume that other people do that a lot more than they do. And so, oh, it's easy to use this tool. Just do, you know, X, Y, Z. It's the curse of knowledge, right? They're, they're so familiar and they spend four hours a day doing it. So it should be obvious to somebody who does it, you know, 10 minutes every other day. So that was, that's the sort of uh, the last mile problem to me was figuring out what those environments needed to look like based on one single fact, which was, how much time do you spend interacting with the system? And if 10 minutes out of eight hours in a day is all you do, do you view that as important? And that is one of the most interesting things that leads to the success and failure of just basic give data to end users systems. Unless they see the value of the information, the KPIs, whatever it is you're delivering to them, they view it on the basis of, 
I need to get to this meeting and I need to do this stuff. That is unimportant. That is the probably one of the least important things. And what they want you to do is minimize that time from 15 minutes to five. Yeah, I would, I would say broadly speaking about any time-based stuff in UX to take it with a grain of salt because sometimes more time spent can be good and more time spent can be bad and less time spent can be good or bad as well. You need the qualitative side of it. You need to understand the context. Are, are they in and out to solve a specific problem? Like what is the current value of X for this report? Okay, got it. It's 92.6. Or is it like, I need to tell them which department we should spend more money on next year to get more, you know, whatever it may be. That's a different kind of thing. So, but I like the fact, it sounds like you guys did a, a diary study. So you had the, the, what we call a diary study in the UX world, but they're self-reporting kind of their usage of the tool and this type of thing. Is that what that was? Uh, we did two things. Uh, one, we instrumented the system so that we could see how long they spent doing which types of activities. Like look at a dashboard, drill down into some metrics, run a report, run a query. So you could see what they did and what they you know did most frequently. And the other was qualitative. It was sending people out saying, okay, you know, you looked at this, what were you doing? Uh, you know, why were you looking at that? To, to, to get a, a more complete picture. But this is a really good point about the time aspect of it because sometimes the answer is they need to spend more time, but it's too hard. It's like playing that video game where you get stuck at the same point every single time. Years back, I worked on a, a video game systems where we were you know, instrumenting the games to understand what was going on, which is common practice today in multi-user games. And one of the things is find these places where people get frustrated and quit. They get stuck... It's too hard, but in a multi-user game driven off of servers as opposed to when installed via you know, CDs on a PC, you can change these things. And so you can make it slightly easier. Like in one case, we were looking at a racing game and there was a particular sequence of things in one point where people just really couldn't get through. And if you didn't master that, you get frustrated and then you can see it because you take all the user activity and you map cohorts of people and you look at the pattern of gameplay. In a lot of these systems, you know, you can, of course, create Skinner boxes. But the idea is to try and maximize that, that play time and keep them playing. And if it's too frustrating, they quit. And actually, you know, I think, when did we do that? We did that right around the time that Rafe Koster wrote one of my favorite books called A Theory of Fun. It's really called A Theory of Fun for Game Design. But we actually use that as part of the design Bible for how one does end-user data delivery. The idea of skill plateaus is not something that most application developers think of because they think they're building an application with a specific function. And a lot of data systems are really tools for people to accomplish the goal, not the system that embodies the goal itself. So that book has just tons of great design and experience advice in how to build systems that successively reveal complexity so that as you get better, the experience becomes richer, but you're capable of working in that environment. And that's a very hard non-functional requirement for people to design towards. That's a great example about the game, uh, the game analytics there. And I think you can break that down. Like this is, again, something that sometimes my clients have trouble with, or there's pie in the sky, what I would call like very few word business goals, like drive, you know, revenue, <laughs> you know, and they're so non-design actionable. This is a great example, right? So one could be, we want to increase gameplay or more experience, more specifically, maybe it's, we want to increase gameplay by five to 10% in terms of time. The scenario for the tool or the service that the internal tool you need to build may be, we need to find points in the tool where gameplay is too difficult and people abandon. So that's your service. And then the tasks might, might be like, you know, you log in and I want to see, has anything changed since last time? Are the sticky points still in the same place? Because theoretically, you might have made some changes, right? So you probably want to understand, is it still hard or not? Do we need to go revisit more time or not? Where are those places? And the next question may be, well, why is it hard? Like what, what is going, what does the data say? Ideally, the system could generate some conclusions for you and provide evidence as backup, but maybe you, your MVP is you just provide some kind of evidence and they kind of have to conclude the why part of it. 
But that's kind of how you take, you know, this pie in the sky goal of like increased gameplay down to something really specific there and, and understanding what's going to go into that from the customer experience perspective. So that's really cool. Actually, I didn't know that they, they did that, but I, I don't work on games, but that's, that's pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't know they're all doing that now. That's neat. They're pretty much all doing that now. Any, any multi-user or even mobile games, you'll see it in mobile app design too. I didn't work on it, but I, I, I would presume that one of those popular games like, like Candy Crush or Angry Birds would, you know, would, would dial in that stuff. I, I know the guys who were building Angry Birds had a lot of telemetry on these things, but I don't know what they did with it. And, and it's the collection of those things that you just described. Well, first of all, you described the thread from the top to the bottom, which is how you figure out all the information for a particular use case. The, the other is that the collection of 20 or 30 of those across different points in the organization give you the shape of the data space and the kinds of things in terms of capacity and capability that you need. And that's the one part of it feeds the application layer, which is what are you trying to do and enable and support. And the other part of it is the infrastructure component. And you now have enough information to guide the lower levels you know, the, the platformy space for the, the data work. Those two things go, and they kind of go hand in hand. Wow, man, this has been a f- fun. We could probably go on for <laughs> more hours and stuff, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But is there any concluding thoughts on like, if someone was to to walk away here with like, you know, you have a lot of experience in this space. Like if I wanted to get better at designing good, enterprise data products. Is there a, any particular advice you might give to a data product manager or an analytics leader, a data science manager? You know, everyone's intentions are good, right? They're all trying to develop better services. But is there a core message you would give to the listeners? Well, really, we over the years put different labels on things. But I think the key point is that starting point of, of goal. Looking back on the conversation about failure, there are companies that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars putting in big data and analytics infrastructure. And they spent all that money without really knowing what the goal was. And in data science, the problem is exactly the same. A bad data scientist doesn't take what you described uh, as a problem and turn it into something actionable. Increase margins. Well, we could increase margins by decreasing costs or increasing sales. Which way do you want to go? And you play that game of chasing it down. But the art of building an analytic model is is very similar. You have to come up with an evaluation criteria for the model. And it has to be concrete and explicit. And if you don't know the uses that you are heading towards, then it's sort of like you don't know where you're going. Any road will do. That's the, the challenge. So that's why I thought it would be interesting, you know, talking with you just from sort of a UX perspective, even though these days, most of my time is based on building plumbing. And the reason it's all based on plumbing is because everybody wants fixtures and then starts with a fixture and runs it all the way back. It's like rewiring your house every time you buy a new toaster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still picturing the, the uh, you know, a four foot sewer pipe running from the pond yeah. down the street from my house to my, you know, like, <laughs> I hope that doesn't break or get clogged. <laughs> right. And in IT, we've got all of that. Right. Because that plus the rewiring of the house, plus the rebuild the house every year because we're adding another floor. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, this is super fun. Mark Madsen, where can people find you online or do you on any of the Twitters and the social medias and the interwebs? Like, where are you out there? These days, I'm not out there that much because I'm not really doing much that's public anymore. But Twitter is one place, which is mainly just random things I find interesting. And conferences, there's always the O'Reilly and Data Earth Institute conferences because I like doing conferences. And your Twitter is uh, Mark Madsen, uh, at M-A-R-K. Is at Mark Madsen, yeah. The other thing is that whenever I do something that's speak-worthy, I post it to SlideShare. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on here. It's been great. Uh, I'll put some of our, our links. Maybe we'll have a clay tablet link and a big ball of mud. There's a lot of mud and dirt themes going on in this episode, <laughs> but I'll, put, I'll try to put links to those. The credit card, uh, AI is the high interest credit card. There's some good stuff here. So I got to check out that design Bible too. The uh, theory of fun for game design. That sounds cool. So thanks for those recommendations and thanks for coming on. You bet. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.